I'm Melissa Ritz, and this is Served, a podcast about female military veterans and their experiences in and out of uniform. Today, I'm joined by Navy veteran Karen Vasquez. Karen, thanks for doing the podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. You and I met in 2016 doing the Veteran Writing and Performance Project at the Geffen Playhouse in Los Angeles. We met every Saturday for about three months and crafted our stories about being in the military and out of the military, and then performed it on the main stage. And I believe there were only four of us ladies in the cast of 11 veterans? Yeah, I think it was 11 at the end. I'd only been in LA for a few months when I got involved with that program, and it was so cool to move somewhere new and have an instant community because of the veteran connection. And veterans have such unique experiences. I think it's fun to share our origin stories. So where are you from originally? Well, I'm originally from Southern California. I grew up in a town called Westminster that's near Disneyland, between the beach and Disneyland. My parents moved up to Northern California my senior year of high school. So I finished up early and I moved up there to go to beauty school and then work as a manicurist. And I ended up joining the Navy about two years after working as a manicurist. I wanted to, you know, like get out and explore and I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. So was the military ever on your radar? Did you come from a military family? Yes. Um, my dad was a Marine in Vietnam. And then one of my cousins was also a Marine in Vietnam. He was a tunnel rat. And my grandfather was in the army, I think shortly after World War II. He was too young for World War II. And then my, on my dad's side, my grandfather was in the army and he was, he liberated one of the concentration camps. You know, you just like, you don't, they don't, they didn't talk about this stuff. So like after they passed away, you know, we found out a lot of these things. When I was 18 and I was thinking about doing this, I, it, it hadn't crossed my mind. I thought, well, maybe I'll look into like working as a manicurist, like one of those vacation resort places. I usually use the joke as like Carnival Cruises wouldn't hire me, but it was 1989 and they didn't have the internet. So you'd have to like call and ask for an application. And the phone was always busy. And I just, I gave up. I had just broken up with my boyfriend and he was in the army. He was a ranger and he used to talk about like how cool it was and jumping out of planes. I'm like, oh, that that sounds kind of cool. Maybe I'll check that out. They just ran too far. I didn't, I didn't like running. So I was like, (laughs) no, I'm not going to do the army. And then I went to the air force and they're like, we can't guarantee you a job. And I thought, oh no, I can't do that. And I wasn't going to be a Marine because my dad was a Marine and I'm like, oh no way. So I looked into the Navy and they're like, oh yeah, we'll, we'll have a job for you. You know, it's like called a radio man. But I, what I didn't know is I'm like, he's like, yeah, when you get done with school, you get a promotion. And I'm like, oh, that's great. And so I get in and I figure out that it's like after I'm in for two years, I go to school right. and then I get a promotion. That's how I ended up in the in the Navy. What did your family think when you came home and said, I've enlisted in the Navy? Um, my parents were pretty happy about it. They thought it as a good way for me to find my compass or figure out how to use one in life because um, <laughs> I really didn't know what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And my dad was like, why didn't you join the Marines? You had to mm-hmm. join the Navy, huh? Mm-hmm. And then I learned that the Marines were part of the Navy. And he's, you know, (laughs) I have a little fun with that. The night I left for boot camp, they took me to the MEP station where they go to Deer Oath and you get on the plane. Like they both drove me up with my sister and my brother in the car at five in the morning into Oakland and dropped me off. And that was it. And where did you do boot camp? I was in Orlando, Florida. And did you have female drill instructors or? Company commanders. And it was all female. And we were trained to be like anti like men and the men were trained to be like anti-woman you don't want to be like a useless female whatever they did not want us there 
your company commanders were men or women? Two of them were women, but they'd rotate a guy in there every now and then. And he was really hot and he smelled good. <laughs> oh my gosh. And we really Karen. liked it. Not, not because he smelled good and he was cute, but he was also like, his wife was pregnant and he would come in and talk about like how excited he was about being a dad. And it was nice to see like a man in leadership who wasn't talking shit about women. He seemed like a little more woke than most men at the time. So you graduate from basic training and where was your first duty assignment? Um, It was on the USS Yellowstone. I had to catch up with my ship because it had already deployed to Naples, Italy. I finally get on the ship and it's like, okay, (laughs) autopilot for like two days while I adjust to the time change. It was, it was strange. And then being on a ship and living that life. So what was the male to female ratio? I don't remember the ratio. There were 1400 crew members. Wow. And I think it might've been like maybe a little less than half were female. I know there had to, it had to be like a 60, 40 ratio. That's a pretty high ratio women, I think. In my department, there were five women and then probably like 30, 30 people. So maybe it's not as high as I remember. And were you doctor in port? We'd go underway, but we go to different ports. So like we were in Naples for, I want to say for like, I don't know, two or three weeks. The destroyers would just pull alongside us and then we'd go underway to the next port. From there, we went to um, Crete. We were anchored because Crete is a pretty small island. They didn't have a place for us to pull up. So we were anchored out and then ships would pull alongside us. We were a destroyer tender. So when people pull into port, when ships, you know, the battleships would come in, we would go in and fix what needed being fixed. If they needed hot water, we'd give them our hot water. We did things like um, refueling underway. So this is all happening around 91 during the war. I was in Desert Shield, Desert Storm, and then Desert Overwatch. We went from Crete to Turkey, and we spent Christmas in Turkey, and then Kuwait got invaded. So we ended up going to Turkey and then on to Saudi Arabia, to Jeddah, and then through the Suez Canal into the Persian Gulf. Our deployment was supposed to be six months. It ended up being nine months. After that, we went to Virginia, and that's where the ships go into the yard, and then the small boats get sent to a detachment called Battle Creek in Virginia. So while our ship was in the yard, that's where I went with the small boats, and we did body work there. Um, So I was in deck department in the boats division, and that meant that they kind of put you in an unknown job, so I was a deck seaman. So I did anything that had to do with boat maintenance, a lot of painting and sanding, There was this one guy, his name, we'll just call him, let's call him Dave. He was right near this freight elevator, but it's on a conveyor belt. And there's like these, like think of like a forklift only inside of something like a refrigerator, but it's not cold. You just open the door and like you put stuff in there like as it passes. Well, it stopped and he decided to stick his head in and look. And a friend of mine was the one that pulled him out of there. I don't remember if they stopped it in time or they pulled him out in time, but it was like about to go into his neck. Well, that story brings up how incidents like that changed safety regulations military-wide. So share with us what your experience was like in the boat bay with safety equipment. Yeah, uh, when I was working in the boat bay, they were giving us safety equipment and they didn't have anything smaller than a medium. And they didn't want to order the equipment because our officer in charge didn't feel that women, like, he's like, you need to go back to the ship. We'll get somebody who can fit into this stuff because women don't work as hard as men. And we're like, oh, really? 
Well, we'll show you. And then we ended up in a battle of the sexes. And so there's like a group of five or six of us and we had the two females and we didn't have respirators. And we were laying in fiberglass, like on our backs, sanding the boats and in an enclosed bay. Sometimes it was outside, but a lot of times it was enclosed. And people on the boats next to us had complete hazmat gear on. And they're like sanding off red. That was the year they took red lead paint off of the waterline on the boat. While you were doing your job with sanding fiberglass and painting, did you start to develop symptoms pretty quickly that you were getting sick? Yeah, I started getting those symptoms probably like, let's say less than a year later after being in the boat bay. I I probably had it earlier because it really didn't bother me until it started to bother me. How long were you in the Navy at that point? I had only been in a year and a year and eight months. Yeah. I started showing signs on my second ship. My fingers started turning blue and I started telling, you know, I'd go to sick bay and I tell the doctor or tell the corpsman and they just like, whatever, you're crazy. You know, that's not happening. I went in there. I had like the stomach flu one time when we were underway and I needed to be excused from a watch because I couldn't stop throwing up. They're like, oh, you're just seasick. No, I, I have an actual, like I've never been seasick in my life. This is nothing. Instead of like listening to you, they just don't believe you about anything. And I have pain in my hands. They'd be like, oh, it's all in your head. Stop taking your birth control pills and cut out the caffeine. And I did that and it continued. And they're like, well, we don't know. I forgot about it until I got back to San Diego and my last duty station. And the blue was getting worse. No one would believe me at that sick call until I got food poisoning and a doctor saw my fingers turn blue and he thought I had paint on my hands. I'm like, I've been standing here as long as you have. I didn't have paint a couple minutes ago. Like, I, I don't know. That's what he asked. Like, do you have paint on your hands? Like, no, These, they're blue. Like, that's what happens. And it's, it's not even cold that triggers it. It's just like a temperature change. So it could be like a couple degrees off. And so, yeah, they referred me to Balboa and they're like, oh yeah, we've seen this before. And at Balboa is where they diagnosed you with? Scleroderma and later sarcoidosis. Can you educate us on what that is? Scleroderma is an autoimmune disease. It has something to do with destruction of connective tissue. And for scleroderma, it's where it hardens the skin. It, it leaves behind scar tissue. Like if you get an infection, the normal antibodies would go to fight that infection. But with scleroderma, it doesn't recognize the healthy cells. So it destroys the healthy cells as well as the bacteria and viruses. And uh, collagen is left behind. So like, for example, in my lungs, I have a little bit of it and I have, it's called pulmonary fibrosis. And it just, you know, makes it into a fiber. It destroys the tissue and then it you have less elasticity in your lungs because you have the restrictions from the hardened hardened tissue. And then sarcoidosis, a lot of times that goes undetected in most people until they die because it's found in a lot of high uh, minority populations. People have lived in projects or like where the building materials aren't very healthy and they're exposed to that. And with me, I have sarcoidosis in my lymph nodes and what they are is like these little granulomas. I just think of like oatmeal grains. And like when it gets inflamed, it's like when it's cooked, it kind of pops out a little bit. Mm. So for both illnesses, are they prescribed immunosuppressants, which doesn't cure it, but it slows down the progression. I wasn't diagnosed for a while with for sarcoidosis until 2007 because I was having trouble breathing. And I'm like, this isn't, this is different. This isn't scleroderma. I don't know why that is, but it's different. And they kept saying, oh, your CT scans are fine. 
we don't see anything. It must be scleroderma. And I'm like, no, there's something else there. And then I took a film of my CT scan because on it, on like three of them, it said, evaluate for lymphoma. And so what happened was, is it gave me a PET scan. It, my lymph nodes lit up like I had cancer. And in less than a week, they did a biopsy at UCLA and they found granulomas. Like the surgeon and my pulmonologist come in, they're like, you're never going to believe this. You don't have cancer, but you have sarcoidosis. And I'm like, I don't know what that is. <laughs> it's, 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 it's like, you won't get, you don't, you won't get chemo, but you're going to be on like a lower, like it's like chemo light. Mm. So you weren't diagnosed with scleroderma and sarcoidosis while you were in the Navy, but you were displaying symptoms as you were approaching the end of your enlistment. What was your next move? I got out. I didn't really think anything of it. But the good thing was it was documented in my medical records that I showed a sign of having it, that somebody else recognized it and put it in my chart. So that's important to note because since it's marked in your medical records, it can be tied to a service-related condition. Yes. Because you didn't have the proper safety equipment and you were inhaling fiberglass and lead paint... That resulted in your diagnosis. Yes. And I ended up at 32nd Street. I stayed there until the end of my service and I got out six months early. So you took advantage of the Clinton administration when they did a, the drawdown and offered incentives for military members to get out early? Yes. So you get out six months early and did you go back home to California? I was already in San Diego and I had been dating a guy for like a couple of years. Anyway, <laughs> we were in love. And so I moved to Wisconsin with him to go to nursing school. And that's where I was diagnosed with scleroderma. When you get out of the military, you get your physical at the VA. And I had this referral to rheumatology. I didn't really think anything about it. And they're like, oh yeah, you have scleroderma. And I'm like, I don't know what that is. I don't even know what you told me. And so I changed majors like halfway through to psychology because things kind of escalated with my health. But I was like, I'm not going back. I'm not going to let this run my life yet. I was like driving three hours one way to go to, to, go, to, Milwaukee, uh, to go to Madison. I'm like, why didn't I just move? to Madison. Sometimes I just do things and I'm thinking I'm being more independent and really it's just creating more work and more <laughs> dedication to the thing that I don't want to be dedicated to. How long were you in Wisconsin? I was in there five years. I took a little extra time for school because of the, um, the major change. And then I came back to California and one of my roommates from the Navy introduced me to a friend of your, her husband's and we ended up you know, getting together and got married and all that. He was, at, he was stationed at Oceanside Okay, I'm using air quotes here. Did you become a quote-unquote dependent wife? I did. I was a dependent wife, but I was a veteran. So I don't know how many times, how many men I told, like my ex-husband got out. Maybe I was like, oh, thank you for your service, like after 9-11. And, and they're like, oh, thank you for your husband's service. I'm like, I was in the military too. Like, why didn't, you, why, didn't you, why didn't you ask me if I was a veteran? I know. I joke with my mom all the time because my dad was active duty army for over 25 years. And we moved around all the time. And I joke with my mom that she doesn't know what the military is like because she's just a quote unquote dependent wife, uh, even though she did so much of the organizing and planning for PCSing and getting three kids into schools and sports teams and dance classes, finding a new place to live. And my dad gets thanked for all his service and my mom side eyes him, you know, lovingly. It's just so crazy. And it's not to bash anyone because those comments are all well-intended and it's one of the reasons I wanted to do a podcast is to educate people, you know, what does a veteran look like? 
So your husband is in the Navy and you're stationed at Oceanside in San Diego. How long were you there for? For a couple of years. And then we bought a house in Marietta mm-hmm. and um, we stayed married for 11 years. And then um, we had my son in 2004. Then I went, I moved to LA in 2013 I had been sick for so long. I hadn't made any friends. I really didn't feel like I was part of the community. So when I didn't have my son, I did nothing. One point I had so much wax in my left ear. It sounds really gross, but I didn't know it until I tried to talk to someone on the phone and I couldn't hear out of one side of my ear. I think it was like I was in bed and I was on the side that I could hear and I couldn't hear the phone and I could see that it was ringing and I couldn't hear the phone. And then I sat up and it, I could hear and I'm like, oh my God, I'm going deaf in my left ear. And I get there and like, yeah, it's covered with wax. Um, how could you not notice this? I'm like, I don't really talk to people. Like I had no, no contact. And I'm like, I got to do something about that. So yeah, then I moved to LA in 2013 and that's when I started stand up. Karen, to go from not being social to stand up uh, to getting on stage in front of a mic, uh, that's a big pivot. Actually, that's not quite how it happened. So I had been, when I divorced my husband, I started writing a blog and it kind of got me active on social media. And then I started writing like funny things about my adventures. And my friend that's helping me with my um, thesis, I was like, I should take a writing class with a comedy writing class. And he's like, oh yeah, yeah. Let me ask these guys at my work. He worked on the set of the league. So he like asked those guys like, what, you know, what, what should she, you know, where should she, he gets this recommendation for um, this teacher and I go and I'm like, oh yeah, it's a writing class. It was a stand-up class. And they're like, yeah, you're going to get up on stage. And I'm like, no way I'm going to do it. And, but, but I did it and I got out there and people were laughing at what I was saying and I loved it. And then I got off stage and I thought about how awful I did. And I'm like, I got to do this again. I want to do it better. I, I did this show. It was a bringer show. Like I, I was in no way a comedy, uh, a comedy store comic, but we had a show there and it was in the main stage. And the first laugh I got off that stage, the way, I don't know if it's like the acoustics in the room, but I could feel the laughter kind of wash over me like a wave. And I was like, I can't, I can't stop this. This is like incredible. Like that you could get somebody to be so emotional. <laughs> I know you love it because you've been doing this for years now. Yeah, I stopped for a little while during the writing program we were in because I I had started script writing and I thought, oh, this is what I want to do. Like, but I thought, you know, I still want to be a comedian. So eventually I worked my way into graduate school and I started out as like, oh yeah, I want to be a screenwriter. And then I took an editing class and I was like, whoa, this is a thing. Like I get to do this and I switched everything. Like, and now I just look at it as I'm I'm a stand-up comic and I have a technical skill. A year before COVID, I planned out my thesis. I was going to do a comedy special and I was supposed to tour this summer. And now we're here and people are doing stuff out of their house. There's no way I could do my thesis the way I'd planned. So now we're filming stuff in my apartment and it's going to be a stand-up comedy slash documentary. What's the documentary part about? about being a comedian with scleroderma and like how I'm living my life and what I did to get there. I applaud you, Karen, because when we met in 2016, I never would have known any of that about you. To go from Oceanside to L.A. and to have been in a place where you weren't social and you made the choice to change your life by pursuing stand-up and grad school, all while parenting a teenager in L.A., and now that takes a lot of grit. 
when I had started my blog, I was on Twitter and I talked to people that were serving in Afghanistan and Iraq and people were tweeting from there. And one of the guys that I had kind of been following, I just reached out to him. I'm like, Hey, I'm moving to LA. I'm going to be a comedian. What should I do? And he's like, you have to contact VME. You have to join VME. So I went to the first meeting, but I didn't really know how to socialize. Like I didn't even know what I wanted to drink from the bar. I was so, so withdrawn. So I just worked the door and that's how I got to meet everybody. So what does your son think about all this? He's got to be so proud of you. He is. He was 10 when I moved here. That was really scary. A few years after we were at Griffith Park and he goes, mom, I'm so glad you moved to LA. My heart stopped and I was just like, oh my God, that's so nice. And I'm, you know, containing it because I don't really, you know, I don't want him to know like how worried I was about it, but it was just yeah, that's like the biggest reward. And now he tells me jokes. Maybe I'll see him on an open mic someday, but he'll that figure it out. Cool. It maybe would. We'll yeah, maybe we'll get up there together and do it. <laughs> maybe, but I, 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 I'm hoping that like he'll, if he's going to be a stand-up comedian, he's going to be a stand-up comedian with like a mechanical engineering degree. I got him really into space and at an early age, you know, pushing on my wishes to be an astronaut, I guess. <laughs> Does he have any thoughts about you being in the Navy? Like my mom's a veteran. Yeah, well, he, he now he's like that age where he's swearing. And he's like, <laughs> well, both my parents were in the Navy. So I'm kind of proud of that. So if a young woman were to tell you that she's thinking of joining the military today, what would you say to her? Um, I would probably wait until the next presidential election. I think there is such a disconnection between the person you vote for and how it affects people in the military. You know, pay attention to your state and local stuff, because if you want to help your veterans, that's how you're going to do it. Everything that the commander in chief does affects every single service member. And there's, there's no reason to put anyone into a position where their, their life is at stake unless it's the absolute last resort. And, and the other thing, I think if she wanted to join the military, I would say, you know, prepare for your ASVAB, figure out what you want to do, really look at the, the jobs in the military. Your recruiter's going to give you what you're eligible for. And based on what the military needs is what you will be assigned. Like maybe that's a lot to throw on somebody who's gone into boot camp, but I would say don't stay close to a career. Like if you're just going to go in and do your four years, like you may find that you're going to do something you like and you're going to love it. Anything that you do that you think sucks or someone tells you that sucks, it's what you make of it. And that's really all that is. You're going to have to pay your dues. You might hate your job. But if you do hate your job, make the best of it and try and just live in the moment. Enjoy the people that are around you. That's what's great about now, as opposed to when you and I joined pre-internet, <laughs> that there's so much information available. And you're right about maybe getting a job you're not crazy about, but that happens anywhere in life. And you'll work with great people and challenging personalities throughout any job, regardless if you're in the military or not. So learn from it. And it's not forever. People PCS or go TDY and you can apply for a different career field once you're in. So there's options. Okay. If we want to follow your comedy, where can we find your Twitter handle? It's Karen Vasquez. That's both Twitter and Instagram. And you have a podcast, the Generation Latchkey Podcast. Where can we find that? It can be found on iTunes and Spotify, and there's one more that I can't remember. But I have another one coming out. It's going to focus on scleroderma. I have a comedian on, and I teach them something about scleroderma that they can explain in less than 60 seconds. It's called Scleroderma in 60 Seconds. So that's that's going to drop soon, too. So I'm going to have it all come out of one website, and that's generationlatchkey.com. Karen, thanks for joining me today and for sharing your story. Thanks. And thank you for listening. 
If you are a veteran in crisis or are concerned about one, contact the Veterans Crisis Line at 800-273-8255, option 1, or visit veteranscrisisline.net. Confidential support is available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year.